Let's turn our friends to this portion we read together. <clears throat> Psalm 18. And we're going to take for a reference this evening the words you'll find in verse 16. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. <clears throat> There is a psalm that we don't sing often enough because it's a psalm that is brimful of God's sovereignty, of gospel doctrine, and of Christian encouragement. And it was composed by David near the end of his life. And it's really a song of thanksgiving. He's reflecting upon God's help to him in numerous dangerous situations. And he allows his mind to run over the ups and downs, the blessings and the calamities which he experienced over the years. And that's why we have that note in the introduction of this psalm. David spoke the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, I have to confess to you, my friends, I find David a strange man, a complex man, a complicated man, a man that I find hard to figure out. On the one hand, He's a hero of God's cause on earth. And in both testaments, he receives accolade. In 2 Samuel 23, he's called the sweet psalmist of Israel. In fact, he composed most of the psalms we sing here every Lord's day. God also calls him, and this is quoted in the New Testament in Acts chapter 13, a man after my own heart. Yet on the other hand, this same man, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man after God's own heart, committed heinous sins against God. Sins that he confessed to in one of his psalms, as you know, in Psalm 51. Then we find him as a very young man, courageously facing Goliath. And then we find him running away from his own son, Absalom. A complicated, very difficult man to fathom. But in the end of the day, there is no doubting his love to God. And that's what makes David such an intriguing man for Christians to study. Sometimes that's not easy, and sometimes it's a pleasure. And it's not unlike perhaps studying Peter in the New Testament. There's ups and there's downs, there's gladness and there's sadness. And yet, I fully believe that David could say in the end of the day what Peter would say 
centuries later, as he was confronted by the Savior that loved him, but the Savior that was probing his mind and his conscience and his memory in that confrontation in the resurrection. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? To which, of course, he gave that memorable answer. Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. And I'm quite sure that would equally be the testimony of this man, David. But isn't it your testimony too? If you're a Christian here today. I have no doubt that most of you who are professing Christians here today are only too aware of your own shortcomings and your staggering and your stumbling along on the Christian path. But yet surely at the close of each day, you could offer this prayer. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Well, meanwhile, on this occasion, we're going to explore, with God's help, some gospel nuggets in our text. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Now, it's worth noting that David began this amazing psalm by declaring his love to God. What a wonderful way to begin a song. Verse 1, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. What a glorious way for you to begin every day, to open your eyes on mercy's ground, and the first words out of your mouth, I love thee, my Lord, my strength. What a testimony. Beginning every day with the praise of God on our lips, the grace of God in our hearts, and the peace of God in our minds. Surely we are indebted to have that kind of testimony. And that ought to be the Christian life in the first instance. Always eager to declare our love to God, whatever the circumstances prevailing in our lives. It would demonstrate surely to ourselves and to others that our staggering and our stumbling and our occasional fall cannot and will not kill our love to God. I'm glad that the Holy Spirit inspired Solomon to write these words in the song, chapter 8, verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. These aren't just words. These aren't just frothy sentiments. These are words that reflect gospel reality. They even reflect uh, the believer's sheer dependence and indebtedness to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's notice, first of all, then, as we look at this reference text, the focus of David's mind in this matter. He sent 
from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. In a very short sentence, he repeats his pronouns for God, which in biblical writing, especially in the Old Testament, is always a sign of emphasis. He wants to emphasize the pronoun, he, he did this. But David does more than that here, because he marries that pronoun with another one. He took me. He drew me. Christian, is that still a source of wonder to yourself? That he took you? That he is still drawing you? Does that still fill you with wonder? It's certainly a sign of true Christianity when men and women, young and old, are able to marry those pronouns and do so privately in your own heart. First and foremost, that's where it has to begin, but also publicly. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. And unless we can make that close contact with the living God and his Christ, and involving and embracing ourselves, and do so privately and publicly, we will never be able to celebrate what it is to be truly Christian. Now, notice how Paul brings both of these dimensions out in another instance in the New Testament, Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. There's both dimensions. Believing in your heart, confessing with your mouth. When we think of David's life with all his duties and responsibilities as the king of Israel, all the ups and downs in his life, he still kept this priority until the end of his days. Uh, most Christians know how easily we are distracted in the things of God. Don't you know that, my friend? I think today, more than ever, Christians are distracted from the more important things in our lives. Because there are so many things to distract us. And that's possibly why Jesus gave such significant advi advice not long before he died to his disciples and thereby to ourselves. In Matthew 26, watch and pray. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. And then he added this, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's me, my friends. Oh, my spirit is so willing. But my flesh is so weak. 
when David came to the end of his life, he was greatly encouraged to have this testimony. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. But this was a man that fell into those snares who knew the weakness of the flesh. As did some of the stalwart Christians whose life and life stories recorded in the scriptures for us. Lot, Noah, Mark, Peter, countless others. But in the end of the day, my friends, they could all say this. He took me out of many waters. And each one of these men and women could also no doubt rejoice with David in the assurance they had of the love of God to the very end. You remember how David brought this out in his own life? And this was when he was reflecting upon his errors. This is in 2 Samuel 23. Though my house be not so with God. In other words, I know I'm not how I should be. I know I've made mistakes, errors of judgment, staggered, stumbled, and even fell. I know all of that. Yet... He hath made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure. What an assurance. And notice the marrying of the pronouns again. He hath made with me an everlasting covenant. In other words, at the end of his life, he felt safe in the everlasting arms of God. Now, if that reflects your own experience, even if you don't have the drama associated with the story of men like David and Peter, if you can say, if you can follow the sentiments of this text, that he sent from above, that he took you from many waters in life, this will give you, my friends, three important encouragements. First of all, it gives you a testimony. This is the only testimony you need. You can say to the world, as you can say to the church, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. And then it gives you that encouragement that whatever happens to you in this life, you are safe. You are secure for time and for eternity. And thirdly, it gives you blessings. God always blesses those who are willing to stand on his side and profess his name to, to the public. God always blesses such people. And if you're here this evening, what we call a secret disciple, I've never professed the name of Christ, don't you expect great blessing? He will bless you and bless you richly. 
Now the question is, do you have that testimony? Is that your testimony? Let me move on to look at God's preeminent preeminence in our salvation here. He sent from above. Biblical narrative promotes God's sovereignty over all things. And the Bible is composed deliberately that way, from Genesis to Revelation. Indeed, the very opening words of the Bible confirms this. In the beginning, God, the sovereignty of God, stamped in the very opening words of Scripture. And from that point on, God is always to the fore in one way or another. <clears throat> and in providence and in grace, it demonstrates his power, his sovereignty, his love, his mercy, his care, and his compassion towards men and women and boys and girls. And notice the scripture, by the way, is slow in demonstrating, equally so, God's intolerance and God's anger and God's judgments. It doesn't hide the fact that the flood of Noah's day, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the genocide of the Canaanites, these were all acts ordained of God. And the Bible doesn't try to hide that. Indeed, this psalm, you will notice in a reading from verse 4 to 15, is full of such evidence. And it's that reality that made David declare. It's as if he had put, but at the beginning of verse 16, he sent from above. But what came to David from above was vastly different from the judgments recorded in verses 4 to 15. In fact, verse 16 stands in stark contrast to verses 4 to 15. Now, everything we own, everything we have in this life comes from above. Everything. Ephesians 1 verse 11, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. James 1, 17, every good and perfect gift comes from where? From above. But this is different. This is talking about the special act of God sending not something from above, but someone from above. And he didn't send this someone from the realms of a heaven filled with angels. Although he sent angels on many, many occasions. But this is not referring to an angel. He sent from above, from the very depths of his own heart and his own being. And in the fullness of time. God's son duly appeared on the scene of history. And he was sent from above to do what no angel could possibly do. He was sent from above to be born in a stable, to live in relative poverty, and to die on the cursed cross of Calvary. 
And the credit, first and foremost, for all of this goes to God the Father. Romans 8, verse 32, He spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. The Father took the initiative in our salvation. And the Son gladly did his will. I come, he says, to do thy will, O God. Now, back in the primitive days of shadows, types, and symbols in which David lived, he understood all of this incredibly. He penned the greatest song ever written on this subject in Psalm 22. It's as if he had been standing on the foot of the cross when he wrote that psalm. Now, when you read through Psalm 22, you'd have to conclude, well, much of this can actually apply to the experiences David himself had in this life. But David knew full well that there was one text, the text we were thinking about a little in the morning, that text couldn't possibly apply to him. It pierced my hands and my feet. And that piercing was very much part of why the Father sent the Son into this world. Because he could never have been pierced otherwise. He was sent to be pierced. So here's the minimum testimony a Christian can give. Confessing and professing that our salvation has come from above. Come from above. And if you are a born-again Christian here this evening, you should know that you could never have saved yourself. Not in a thousand years. And nor for that matter could any angel have saved you. It had to be someone sent from God's own heart. And we must honor the role of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this. And here's the order. The Father sends, the Son saves, and the Spirit applies. And in terms of that order, that order, <clears throat> we are to honor the Father first. And that's why Jesus constructed the Lord's Prayer in the way that he did. Our Father, which art, in heaven. So, <clears throat> excuse me, let's make sure that we appreciate the implications of this claim. He sent from above. And if God hadn't taken the initiative in all of that, my friends, we would all die in our sins. And furthermore, if we believe our salvation is all of grace, how can we deny Honoring him. By grace you are saved, the Bible says. Through faith. That not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And my friends, to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be all the glory. But what if you haven't got that testimony? What if you don't believe that he sent from above to be your savior? 
What if you don't believe that personally for yourself? Where does that leave you? Mull over that question. Let me look thirdly at the next claim in our text. <clears throat> he took me, he drew me out of many waters. Now, <clears throat> one of the many fascinating aspects of Holy Scripture is the choice of words used in numerous instances, whether it's verbs, nouns, or adjectives. And in Hebrew and Greek, and Hebrew in particular, some of these words, and verbs especially, can have layered meaning. Take this uh, word, took. He took me. It can mean take, fetch, receive, and even marry. To be taken in order to be married. Now, as you can imagine, all of these can apply in a gospel sense. The believer's testimony is, we were singing about a moment ago in Psalm 40, he took me from a fearful pit and from a miry clay. But God the Father <clears throat> also took me, if I can use myself as an illustration here, God the Father also took me to make me as he makes every other believer, born-again Christian, an inheritance for a son. That's what we Christians are here this evening. We're the inheritance of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were singing about this earlier on in Psalm 2. Ask of me, this is the Father speaking to the Son, ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. Wasn't that us? Weren't our fathers and forefathers heathen before the gospel came? But what are we now? We are the inheritance of the eternal Son of God. What a blessing. The Father also took me to make me part of the bride of Christ. A married, inseparably united to the Lord Jesus Christ in my effectual calling. And there's nothing in this world, nothing amongst men, nothing amongst angels, nothing amongst devils, nothing in my own heart that can sever me from the Lord Jesus Christ because I am married to him, part of the bride of Christ. The Father also took me and adopted me into the royal family above. Romans 8.15, you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, we are the only people on the face of this earth who have the warrant and the right to call God Almighty, Abba, Father. And we can trace all of that to this one verb. He took me. And because of all that, God Almighty has a deep and personal interest in each and every one that believes in the Lord Jesus. And as we go through life, he demonstrates that interest in a thousand and one different ways. We look at David's life, 
God's eye was never often. But it's not merely that God has interest in great men like David. He has interest in you and he has interest in me because we too are engraven on the palms of his hands. <coughs> he drew me out of many waters. Can't you relate to that in your own life? Can't you see the hand of your heavenly father drawing you out of these deep waters through which you had to go in the mystery of his providence from time to time? David liked to use this imagery of water. And he was possibly alluding to the significance of water in the history of the children of Israel. Moses, for example, was drawn out of water. In fact, that's what his name means. The children of Israel passed through waters over the Red Sea and the River Jordan. Isaiah also liked this imagery. As many of you know, this famous text in Isaiah 43, when thou passest through the waters, what does God say? I'll be with you. No matter how deep they are, I'll be there with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. And indeed, David used this metaphor twice in another Psalm, Psalm 69. Let me be delivered out of deep waters. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. So by this phrase, he drew me out of many waters. David is alluding to the many difficulties, sorrows, and suffering he endured in this life. Sometimes by his own hand, sometimes by the hand of others. He indicates this in verse 4. The sorrows of death compassed me, and floods of ungodly men made me afraid. Oh, my friends. Most Christians can and should expect to end up in deep waters to some extent at some point of your life. Maybe many occasions when you're struggling with the issues of life, when you're struggling with the loss of a loved one, when you're struggling in confronting family dilemmas, all of that, my friends, can feel at times like floods coming over your head. Now, we should expect all of that living in a fallen world. And many of you already have gone through those waters, and perhaps you're going through deep waters this very evening, for all I know. It's part and, part and partial of living in a fallen world. Yet at other times, the hand of God can leave us in deep waters. And although everything ultimately is from God, sometimes he will deliberately test and try us even to the 10th degree, as Job clearly demonstrates to us. 
These are the deeper, deepest waters of all, my friends. And the harder to overcome. Because these deep waters are come from God's hand. They are exceptionally, exceptionally difficult to deal with. Questioning God is only that far from the tip of your tongue when you're going through those deep waters. And even if we have the grace to say, it's of the Lord. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Nevertheless, these deep waters can still feel like they're crushing us. However, hard as it be to understand and hard as it may be to appreciate at the time, when you're going through the deep waters that God has ordained for you, remember this, it's for your good. It's for your good. Tough as that may be at times to grasp, it is for your good. And in the end of the day, every believer will agree with David. He drew me out of many waters. He'll put you through deep waters, but he won't leave you in deep waters. He drew me out of many waters. And he draws us out of those waters, not to leave us in a vacuum, Rather, as Solomon's put it, Solomon puts it, draw me and we will run after thee. This is how it's for our good. As we emerge from these deep waters, this is what we want to do. Draw ever closer to God because we know that's where our refuge is. So he draws us out of these deep waters to take us ever closer to himself. He draws us out of deep waters to encourage us in our pilgrimage on earth. He draws us out of deep waters to strengthen our faith. He draws us out of deep waters to make us even ever more dependent upon himself. And he draws us out of deep waters to make us conquerors and overcomers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me close with this. He will never cease to draw us until he accompanies us over the threshold between time and eternity. He will take us, my friends, into paradise itself. Never to leave us. Never to forsake us. Underneath. Always. Are the everlasting arms. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and blessed God. We thank thee that. We can be encouraged. Though we may have to struggle. With the issues of life. Struggle with the mystery of thy providence. Struggle with our own shortcomings. Struggle with opposition on every side. 
And yet we know that there is a drawing power that will deliver us from all of these trials, all of these testing situations, and we shall be delivered even into the immediate presence of our God and our Savior. We have promises to that end that cannot be broken. Promises that are yea and amen in Christ, sealed in the blood of the everlasting covenant. Amen.